0: Hey, folks, it's Luke. Stay where you are, because in the next hour, you're going to meet a man who mashed up Shakespeare and Star Wars, which ends up sounding a little something like this.
3: Luke, take thou these droids onto our vast garage. My wish is it that they clean it be ere we dine.
1: But unto Tashi Station would I go, and there obtain some power converters. Fie!
0: <laughs> these art not, it turns out, the droids thou art looking for. For this be beeth... it) <laughs> From the beautiful Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon, it's Livewire with authors Ian Desher, TK Boyle, MK Asante, and music from Tanya Donnelly. Plus, comedy from our troupe Does This Sound Funny to You? And even more music from our house band led by Mr. Ralph Huntley. Welcome to Livewire Radio. I'm your host, Luke Burbank, and we have a great show for you this week. You see, every year, Portland hosts this amazing literary get-together, which is called Wordstock. And every year, we at Livewire, we poach the best, most interesting writers, and we bring them on down to the Alberta Rose Theater. It is a super sweet deal for us, because Wordstock does all the work, and we get all of that sweet, sweet public radio glory. Which, let me tell you, is really glorious. Now, if you're a writer... Or like many of us, if you've dreamed of being a writer, we've got some advice for you coming up this hour from famous author T.C. Boyle, who's won, among other things, a Penn Faulkner Award.
4: Well, first of all, any writer who who comes into the class and has ambition to be a writer, the first thing is they must come from a wealthy family. That's their (laughs) only hope right there.
0: Okay, maybe that's not the uh, inspiration. You were looking for but Tanya Donnelly from the band The Breeders and Throwing Muses also stopped by to play some music, which she wrote as a writer and also to talk about her other job as a doula who helps new mothers.
5: If somebody has figured out who I am, there's a little bit of a thing about it. But then the baby comes and that entire dynamic is completely suppressed because the baby takes over everything and as it should be.
0: And we talked to writer and filmmaker M.K. Asante about growing up in Philadelphia, as he calls it, and getting life lessons in some pretty unexpected places.
6: Dude, a homeless dude one day came up to me. He was like, young man, you know what soul is? Soul is the graceful survival against impossible circumstances, and you got soul. Tell me you gave that guy some money.
0: First off, though, we were actually talking Star Wars, because one of our other guests on the show, a guy named Ian Desher, he has adapted Star Wars dialogue into Shakespearean prose, and the thing is, that is a topic that is near and dear to my heart. For a kind of obvious reason, a reason that I explained to the audience at the Alberteros Theater. Take a listen. Um, you know, anything Star Wars kind of resonates with me because um, my name is Luke, <laughs> and <laughs> I grew up in the 1980s. And in fact, thank you, sir, for helping me, because for the last 30 or so years, not one day of my life has gone by where someone hasn't said to me, "Luke, I am your father." <laughs> And if they haven't said it to me, it's almost killed them to not say it. And I've talked to some other Lukes, and they've all had the same experience. Some of them don't really like it. I actually think it's kind of great. Because whenever somebody says, Luke, I'm your father to me, they have a look on their face that says, nailed it. And I love that because when you meet someone, right, what are we trying to do in this world? We're trying to make a connection with people. We're trying to say, I know you and I are different, but maybe we're not as different as we think, and I'm also a human being, and nothing kind of makes that connection happen like a well-timed, perfect joke or a really obvious joke that's been made to me literally thousands of times. But the point is, I get to let that person have that moment in their day. And I would just say, if you're somebody who has a name that lends itself easily to an obvious joke, maybe, and I mean, if you're like the kind of person who you don't want to give your real name at Starbucks or you wince before you go into a business meeting because you know you're going to get the same thing said about your name, maybe you can think about it as your gift to the world. (laughs) Like, you have this amazing opportunity to give somebody that moment in their day where they're like yeah nailed it like that's an amazing gift that you can give them and here I am talking about my name Luke and and some of the challenges of that and yet I cannot even imagine walking a mile in in my brother's shoes uh my brother who my parents named Boba Fett it's just it's a lot of perspective for me so all right let's do a radio show you guys Well, at 16, when many of us were calling in music dedications to our local radio stations, Tanya Donnelly was actually making the music. With the band throwing muses that she and her stepsister, Kristen Hirsch, founded, then came the breeders and eventually Belly, who taught us forever to take your hat off, boy, when you're talking to me and be there when I feed the tree, which I still have no idea the meaning of. Anyway, since then, she's released five solo albums. Her most recent is Swan Song Series Volume 2. Please welcome Tanya Donnelly to Livewire.
2: between used to scare me our unpredicted flights but now I'm into it because when everyone is gone we brush ourselves off and dance I dust off your spine you dust off mine written, unread. I dust off yours, you dust off mine so well
0: Tanya Donnelly here on (laughs) LiveWire. Tanya, you started out at a pretty young age making music that was incredibly well-received, certainly amongst people who kind of know from music. I mean, the breeders really defined kind of a sound that was happening. I mean, did you just think at age 16 and 17, oh, this is just how it goes when you start a band with your stepsister?
5: Yes, I did yeah i mean i we and actually when when it was pointed out to us how unusual the the situation was and how young we were um, and how weird what we were doing um, or you know it it did it i think it was sort of information that we had to process alone in our hotel rooms afterwards because it did seem sort of um, it seemed so natural to us and 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 really an extension of the we just felt like we were part of the continuum, you know, and that it was a natural thing that we were plugging into, and so I think it it definitely was something that we were surprised by, the reaction.
0: I mean, were you guys ever tempted when you were starting out? I would just imagine as a 16-year-old kid, you'd want to make something that you knew would be immediately popular, and in that day and uh, and era, I don't know what that would have been, like... New Kids on the Block cover band, or I don't know, whatever was super right. popular those days. <laughs> you guys were making something really different. I mean, how did you guys have the confidence to do that?
5: Um, that, I think I think it's because we were such a... Such a our wagons were circled so tightly that we um, kind of just... We came out of a very familial environment, and we were very tight, and I think that's what it was, that we were very um, tribal about the whole thing, so... we supported each other and we have a I think humor also was hugely important to us in that Um, but also you know I honestly feel like we felt we didn't feel like we were doing anything um, groundbreaking at the early on we really didn't it just felt like we were part of the whole process and um, and so we carried that with us and we protected that feeling as we went forward
0: and then you followed that really well worn sort of path of you know teenager who creates a seminal sound of music eventually into being a doula <laughs> <laughs> you know that old chestnut
5: yeah there's a ba- that's a there's a huge under uh, yeah. there's a backstory there so
0: <laughs> but you know. i mean that is that is something that you actually now do and know how to do
5: yeah well and yeah I do that. That's my; those are my off hours: is birthing and postpartum support.
0: <laughs> so when you're not playing in a theater in front of all these people and going out uh, on radio across the country, your L- lactation
5: at support, <laughs> <laughs> or 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 not. You know, I mean, yeah, it's, it's just sort of. I feel like going into a home. And supporting that new nest is, um, it does give me the same, uh, you know, that same feeling of enormous satisfaction in terms of connection
0: that music does, so. Do they know who their doula is?
5: (laughs) Some of them, some some do, but, you know, I have to tell you that once, in the pre-interview stages, if somebody has figured out who I am, there's a little bit of a thing about it. As soon as like the baby... they want
0: their baby to be hella cool yeah, well, yeah. when it's coming but out. as soon as like, the listen, baby don't comes... mess this up for us. This is Tanya Donnelly. <laughs> yeah.
5: yeah. But then the baby comes and the baby takes nothing. It, that entire dynamic is completely suppressed because the baby takes over everything and as it should be. So, <laughs>
0: it could be Madonna. Yeah, and they don't care. Yeah, she could care
5: like... less. Yeah, it's all that is all gone, yeah.
0: Well, that's great. Well, thank you very much.
5: Thank you so much. Tanya Donnelly
0: here on LiveWire Radio. LiveWire is sponsored in part by Whole Foods Market and their 365 everyday value line. How often do you think to yourself, I want macaroni and cheese, but only if it has yellow number five in it? The answer is never. You don't want yellow number five food coloring. And when you get 365 everyday value macaroni and cheese, you can be confident it won't have any ingredients named after a number. That's part of the Whole Food Eat As Promise program. More information can be found at eataspromise.com. Welcome back to Live Wire Radio. I'm your host, Luke Burbank.
3: Attack upon this station, pointless is. Regardless of the data they have found, I speak not rashly when I hear Aver. This station now hath power ultimate o'er all else in the vast wide universe. And now, I prithee, let us see it used.
7: Nay, peace, I warn thee, man, be not too proud of thy great terror technological. A weapon for the mass destruction of a planet... Even to destroy it whole is no match for the power of the Force.
3: <laughs> thou shalt not tempt to frighten us with words so like a man of magic, Vader. Nay, thy sorcerer's act is tired and overdone. The sad religion thou dost cling to hath no power to conjure up the stolen plans. Nor dost thou have a third eye sight to make...
2: <gasps> the, the power of the Force is now unveiled. As Vader holds the admiral in check, the force that Monty with his words impaled now hath a wampus
7: hold about his neck. I find thy lack of faith disturbing. Sis! As is thy will. My point hath well been made upon his prideful, unbelieving throat.
0: That was a scene from William Shakespeare's Star Wars by our next guest, Ian Desher. Ian is just a regular old guy with a B.A. in music from Yale and a master's in divinity from Yale and a Ph.D. from Union Theological Seminary who wondered what George Lucas's classic would sound like given the Shakespearean treatment. I'm not sure how he made scruffy-looking Nerf Herder sound classy, um, but he's here to explain. Please welcome to Live Wire, Ian Desher. Ian, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I understand that you were actually not a giant Star Wars fan before you well, started I knew- this. And as a, you know, guy in his, what are you, late 20s, early 30s? Mid 30s. I, I,
1: I find your lack of liking Star Wars troubling. <laughs> to be fair, I know the movies frontward and backward. It's the whole extended universe, you know, big fanboy thing that I don't know at all.
0: So how did you actually narrow it down? Because, yeah, I mean, even as I was writing these questions, I was nervous because I know that if you refer to something as Star Wars, but it's actually from a different movie or a book or a prequel or Jar Jar Binks' Hope Chest or whatever is going on (laughs) with these universes of this story that spin out, people will be upset. There's a lot of
1: pressure to get it right. Well, they say write what you know, and I knew that first movie... Uh, very, very well. So it was not any uh, stretch of the imagination for me to say, okay, I'm going to focus on the first movie alone, and that's going to be what the book is. Um, I hear you had to, like, um, do a lot of research on something called Wookiepedia. <laughs> Wookiepedia is a resource that exists online. Again, it's something that you learn when you write a book about Star Wars. <laughs> and, uh, and so when you're looking for, you know, what is that admiral's name? Who is Taggy? Nobody, The word taggies never used, and yet that's a name in Star Wars. And Wikipedia can tell you that in crushing detail.
0: Yeah, what has the feedback been for the book? I mean, do you have a lot of... Um, I'll call them socially challenged Star Wars fans <laughs> because this is public radio who are just sharpshooting you online about, you know, something you didn't get perfectly?
1: In general, the Star Wars fans have been... Really great. They have been uh, embraced the book, and they have been very kind to me. You know, it's the Star Wars purists who are saying, "Why is there a scene with Han Solo and Jabba the Hut? Why did he take the 1997 re-release and make that the version that he used?" Sorry, but wait folks. a minute. You
0: didn't really do a scene with Solo and Jabba the Hut, right? Hey, Luke. He's is- frozen the whole time. He's in Jabba's.
1: No, oh, man. Come on. Come on. Go back to the first movie and there's this scene that Lucasfilm re-added in 1997 when they re-released the movies between Han and Jabba the Hutt. They superimposed Jabba computer animation and now that's the canonical version that Lucasfilm is saying is the Star Wars. And it's the Star Wars purists who are saying, "Hmm, no way." Well, touche, Ian.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I'm really not a Star Wars nerd. <laughs> yeah. Does George Lucas know you're doing this? I hope so. <laughs> Lucasfilm does know, yes. Uh, we had to get licensing from them uh, and their permission to, to do this. What is the process
0: like, or what was the process like, in terms of literally taking the dialogue from Star Wars and the text and then deciding what you were going to use and how you were going to actually convert it into, into the Shakespearean kind of mode?
1: So basically I'm, you know, watching the DVD a little bit at a time, looking at the script online, reminding myself what the lines are, and then, uh, you know, it's almost like a translation uh, piece, you know, translating into iambic pentameter, and then thinking, okay, uh, does this character need to have an aside right here, or or are they alone on stage so they could have a soliloquy, or is there something that's going on with the action that the chorus needs to be explaining? Uh, You know, so there are a few different levels that are going on there. Um, you are clearly a smart
0: guy. I understand you. You read Hamlet as a kid. This is a just, you know, summertime diversion or something. The rest of us were waiting for Otter Pops to freeze. <laughs> it's like... Um, but... Uh, so I guess you know, you kind of know from writing. Is the actual dialogue in the Star Wars movies as
1: bad as many of us now think it is? My wife, Jennifer, read a review online that was talking about, you know, the, my book and saying, wow, this makes the dialogue uh, so much better than the original. And she said, wow, look, honey, they're, they're complimenting you. And I said, no, no, they're insulting George Lucas.
0: <laughs> uh. <laughs> All right, listen, I, I understand that we're going uh, to hear a little more from your book. Our sketch comedy troupe is going to come out and help Ian with this.
1: So, what we're going to hear here is the trash compactor scene where Luke and Han and Leia and Chewbacca are all in the trash compactor and they are uh, fighting for their lives and they're trying to get through to C3PO and R2D2, who, as we learned, does an aside in English. 3PO! Okay, now climb on top!
6: In faith, I try!
3: Where is the knave? C3PO! Oh, I fear a wicked fate's befallen them. Pray, Artu, see if they are imprisoned are. Now search apace. Beep, beep. <laughs> they are not found. Oh, great relief. Where may they be? Squeak. <laughs> Use the comm link. Oh, I had forgotten quite and turned it off. Pray, art thou there, sir? P O. tis thou? I will confess, we have some problems faced. Three P L, lend ears and not thy voice. Disarm thou every refuse masher on detention levels. Dost thou mark me, droid? Be rapid, else thy master is no more. Nay, shut them all down. Hurry, or 2 go. Beep, squeak, me whistle, who? <laughs> oh, no heart within this golden breath doth beat. For only wires and circuit boards are here. Oh. Yet, as I hear my master's dying screams, no heart is necessary for my grief. A droid hath sadnesses, and hopes, and fears, and each of these emotions have I felt since Master Luke appeared and made me his. No, master, have I erred, respected so, thus at this moment grave I do declare, there is no etiquette for shedding tears, no protocol
1: can e'er express my woe. A plague on 3PO for actions slow. A plague upon my quest that led us here. A plague on both our circuit boards, I say. Nay, nay,
3: nay, fear not, dear droid. We all still live. Pray, open the door on maintenance hatch
1: 326827. Blessed be! Oh, fondest hope. Oh, fervent prayers now heard. My master is alive and plagues deterred. That was Sean McGrath, Andrew Harris, Laura Smith, and Ian
0: Descher. As R2-D2. Ian, I just want to ask you one more question uh, before we let you go, which is, I think, maybe uh, one of the, the coolest parts about this book that you've done is, is it actually, I mean, has it been distributed to schools yet? Is that one of the goals? Because it seems like, you know, a cool way to get kids to maybe accidentally read some, some sort of Shakespearean prose.
1: That's actually my greatest hope for the book, uh, is that it will be... Would you you call it a new hope? Verily, (laughs) yes. Uh, And and now that it's fall, I actually am hearing from teachers who are using it in their classrooms. They are using it as a way to sort of be a bridge into Shakespeare for their students. uh, Because at least by the time they've read this, they've read a lot of iambic pentameter. They've seen some of the literary devices that Shakespeare used uh, and things like that. So at least it's getting kids warmed up into Shakespeare so that then they can tackle the real thing.
0: That's Ian Descher, ladies and gentlemen. The book is William Shakespeare's Star Wars. You know, more and more, Hollywood turns to books as fodder for movies. After mining every possible story from books geared towards adults, teens, and even young readers, desperate producers have begun adapting material previously deemed unadaptable from books meant for ages zero to two. (laughs) We now present a new slate of trailers coming this fall.
7: From the demented mind of Margaret Wise Brown comes a tale of compulsion and obsession. It's time for bed, but there's too many things in the great green room. Things that need a proper send-off. It's time to say your goodnights to everything. Daniel Day-Lewis, Brian Dennehy, And Gary Oldman as the old lady who says, Hush, (laughs) good night, moon, rated R.
3: Paul and Judy thought they had the perfect life, and they do. They get to smell the pretty flowers, feel daddy's scratchy face, and of course, pat the bunny. What could be wrong when it feels so right? Kira Knightley, Michael Fassbender, Pat the Bunny rated R.
6: It started as an egg on a leaf.
1: But soon that egg hatched. Now 100 very hungry caterpillars is out. There's no orange too thick, no strawberry too dense, no lollipop too unavoidable, and no evident reason why he can't just circle around after tunneling through a piece of food and eat it through again, I mean, come on. Helen Mirren is the very hungry caterpillar. Rated R.
7: One man. One woman. One stubborn child. One inescapable destiny. Everybody poops.
0: Rated R. Andrew Harris, Sean McGrath, and Laura Faye Smith. I find it upsetting that all of those movies were rated R. What happened to the good old days of Paul Blart Mall Cop? All right, award-winning writer T.C. Boyle has written 24 books of fiction, including World's End, which won the Penn Faulkner Award, The Road to Wellville, which was made into a movie starring Anthony Hopkins and John Cusack, and 10 collections of short stories. His most recent work is a book of 58 short stories he's written over the past 15 years. I know, just only 58 stories. Someday, he's going to put his nose to the grindstone and start to actually write some stuff. Please welcome T.C. Boyle to Live Wire. You're very tall for a writer.
4: I sprouted up uh, by uh, stealing um, maple sugar, the sap from it, when I was in college. I was just like 5'2 and I drank this thing and suddenly I shot up. By the, by the way, Luke, I have a present for you.
0: I already have my own copy, friend. <laughs> which I, I mean, the good news is it's not only been great reading for me, it's also been part of my CrossFit program. <laughs> I pick Stories 2 by T.C. Boyle up four times every day. It's like a kettlebell raise. Excellent.
4: Well, my interest with this book is not simply to crush my enemies metaphorically, but actually, literally crush them. So if this is Stories 2, is Stories 1 this voluminous? It's a mere 750 pages, but they squeezed it. See, now I'm a better-known author, and they've given us a a richer and, and bigger print.
0: So like somebody who's lost their readers could not read... Stories One by T.C. Boyle, because the print is far too small. No, no,
4: you need binoculars, actually.
0: (laughs) What do you think is your sort of
4: strongest skill or talent as a writer? Uh, Having a diseased brain. And incidentally, (laughs) while we're on that, I should say that two of the most defining moments of my life occurred here in Portland. Here's first. Here's the first one. So I came to town on the eternal book tour, and I wasn't going to read at Powell's. I was going to do the arts and lectures in the fancy symphony space. And I came into town, and there was my name in giant letters. I thought, wow, this is great. I've made it. The next morning, when I was leaving the hotel all greasy and funky with bags full of dirty underwear, I noticed that somebody else's name was on the marquee. That's it. That was That's the story. That was
0: event number one. <laughs> I just want to know what happened to that hotel room. <laughs> Dirty, funky bags of greasy underwear? Mm-hmm. You have Is to, that in
4: Stories 3? You have to be in the same hotel twice in order to get your underwear washed. Two nights in a row, okay?
0: Oh, I see. So they won't do a quick turnaround on okay, that.
4: Okay, the second one, again, it was a summertime thing. I came up here to do a gig, and uh, I was at a nice hotel that, that features some um, salmon hash for breakfast and, you know, all you can eat. So I had a great time. I ate my breakfast, and I wandered down to the harbor, and they were having the blues festival. I was very excited there having the Blues Festival. Um, It was maybe 9 in the morning though and it wasn't open yet. The Blues Festival was to uh, raise money for food banks for the homeless and so on. So I was just sitting there looking around and suddenly the arena began to fill up with bums. And uh, uh, out came the bum advocate and he said to all of us, um, you can get free food in there if you want. And I said, no, I'm not hungry. A minute later, one of my compatriots came out with a big plate of food, and he said, man, you should go in and get some free food. So I did. How was it? Uh, excellent. Better than, the, uh, better than the salmon hash, actually.
0: Uh, I really enjoyed this book, and one of the uh, stories that I particularly enjoyed was called After the Plague. Because it raises a really interesting question, which I'd I'd never thought of, which is, what happens if there's a plague and there are only a few people left on Earth and you manage to meet a surviving female and it turns out you hate each other?
4: (laughs) Well, isn't that the way it always is? Plague or no plague?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Is that your your fear? I wondered, because this character goes up into the, uh, I guess it's the Sierras, And I I wondered how much of that was kind of autobiographical for you. Your thoughts about, you know, if something really goes down, decamping from Santa Barbara, heading up into the hills. Yes,
4: actually, look, it's entirely autobiographical. I don't know if you remember, uh, it was about uh, 20 years ago, everybody on earth died except for me, and this one (laughs) obnoxious female. So I just wrote about that, everybody came back to life, and we have a book. You were that guy? Yeah, that was me. I
0: had no idea. You also teach writing at USC... And I was wondering, because one of the things we've talked about during these Wordstock shows is that so many people feel like they've got a story to tell, and they could be a writer if they could just become disciplined enough to do so. Do you ever have a student who clearly cannot write their way out of a paper bag? And and what do you tell them? Hmm.
4: Well, first of all, any writer who who comes into the class and has ambition to be a writer, the first thing is they must come from a wealthy family. That's their (laughs) only hope right there. Um, uh, secondly, um, truly, and uh, without being facetious, it's not my job to say, hey, man, you don't have it, because they surprise you. Um, I'll give you an example. During the punk era, there was this guy. You know, he's very cool, he's a punk, and he really wanted to do it, and he didn't make the cut twice in a row. He actually, even though he was a punk and a tough guy, kind of broke down, you know, the last time he didn't get in. But finally, he made it as an alternate... And by the end of that semester, he is the best in the class, and he's going on to be a a great... His name is John Grisham, by the way. No, no, you you can't make that judgment. Um, I'm the advocate for everyone, and I try to make him a better artist if I can. Do you think, though, that
0: writing is a a skill, uh, an ability that somebody can acquire through hard work?
4: (laughs) Well... Uh, you have to have a great talent, and then you have to have uh, perseverance, hard work, and luck. Um, but you'd be surprised what a great pool of talent there is. I mean, I've always been amazed by the people coming through the program. You know, and USC wasn't always the master of the universe that it is now. When I first started there and started the writing program, you know, it was pretty much if you can pay the tuition you're in. But still, it didn't affect me because I'm working with people who have a great talent. It's like being, you know, working in the music department or the art department. So it's always been great.
0: Uh, this is Live Wire Radio. We're talking to T.C. Boyle. His newest book is Collection of Stories. He's also the author of Tortilla Curtain, The Woman, and The Road to Wellville. Now, The Road to Wellville is a wonderful book that spends a lot of time in Battle Creek, Michigan. When you're writing... A fictional kind of uh, uh, book, but it's based in sort of real events or real-ish events. How much do you get into the research? Are you one of those writers who just spends hours and hours trying to get every detail right? Or do you give yourself a little room for invention?
4: Uh, E.L. Doctorow, who only writes historical fiction, said in an audience, to an audience like this, in which I was a member, he said, you know, you have to realize you're a novelist. You're only doing the research in order to make a work of art. And so, yes, I'm pretty obsessive for about three months, and then I get to it. And incidentally, Battle Creek, Michigan, um, I went back there after the book had been published. A big mistake. Uh, the <laughs> local people were outraged that I had come from L.A. and stolen their history and made fun of Dr. Kellogg and so on. Um, but a friend of mine had told me, I don't know if he learned this in science class or what, that if you coat your body entirely in Vaseline, tar and feathers will not stick. Um, LAUGHTER I missed one spot on the back of my neck, and it was there for, like, six months.
0: You stayed in that hotel for six nights, and they still wouldn't wash your underwear. (laughs) That was a a non-starter for them. Um, I think you're going to read something for us. I would like uh, to.
4: Um, I'm just going to give you the beginning of one of the stories, which is called La Conchita. So this is a story about a guy who's a jerk. And I apologize to all you Honda drivers before we even start. La Conchita. In my business, where you put something like 40 to 45,000 miles a year on your vehicle and the sweet suck of the engine at 3,500 RPM is like another kind of breathing, you can't afford distractions. Can't afford to get tired or lazy or lift your eyes from the road to appreciate the way the fog reshapes the palms on Ocean Avenue or the light slips down the flanks of the mountains on that mind blowing stretch of Highway 1 between Malibu and Oxnard. Get distracted, and you could wind up meat. I know that. The truckers know that. But just about everybody else, Honda drivers especially, and I'm sorry, don't even know they're behind the wheel and conscious half the time. I've tried to analyze it. I have. They want value, the Honda drivers, value and reliability, but they don't want to pay for the real deal. German engineering is what I'm talking about here. And yet they still seem to think they're part of some secret society that allows them to cut people off at will to take advantage because they're so in the know, so hip, so Honda. And yes, I carry a gun. A Glock 9 I keep in a special compartment I had built into the leather panel of the driver's side door. But that doesn't mean I want to use it. Or would use it again, except in extremis. The only time I did fire it, in fact, was during that rash of freeway shootings a few months back a statistical bubble, the police called it, when people were getting popped at the rate of two a week in the greater L.A. area. I could never figure it, really. You see some jerk swerving in and out of traffic, tailgating, and maybe you give him the finger, and maybe he comes up on you. But you're awake, aren't you? You've got an accelerator and a brake pedal, right? Right. But most people, I guess, don't even know they're alive in the world or that they've just made the driver charging up on them homicidal or that their engine is on fire or the road dropping off into a crater the size of the sea of tranquility because they've got the cell clamped to the side of their head and they're doing their nails or reading the paper. Don't laugh. I've seen them watching TV, gobbling Kung Pao out of the carton, doing crossword puzzles and talking on two cells at once and all at 80 miles an hour. Anyway, I just fired two slugs, blip, blip, didn't even know my finger was on the trigger. Plus, of course, I was aiming low, just trying to perforate his rocker panels or the idiotic big dick off-road Super Avenger tires that had him sitting up 12 feet off the ground. I'm not proud of it, and I probably shouldn't have gone that far, but he cut me off twice. If he'd given me the finger, it would have been one thing, but he didn't even know it, didn't even know he'd nearly run me into the median two times in the space of a minute.
0: T.C. Boyle,
4: here on Live
0: <laughs> T.C.'s latest collection of short stories is called Stories 2. This is Live Wire Radio, and it's brought to you in part by Laughing Planet Cafe, committed to supporting farmers and serving fresh local food in easy to carry burrito form. So good, so close. More information at laughingplanetcafe.com. Support for this program comes from the Arthur and
3: Madeline Nantel Memorial Fund, dedicated to rebuilding dilapidated playgrounds in urban areas throughout the country the Benedict and Marilyn Chesawith Foundation, improving American super soldiers through the use of enriched uranium since 1967. <laughs> From the Colombian drug cartels, supporter of public broadcasting and large-mouth bass fishing since 1979. The Judy Ordella Trust, committed to sending twice-daily department-wide emails with links of cats doing cute things. Online at, sorry for the mass email, but OMG, you guys, look how cute, LOL.org. org. <laughs> From the Mike and Jennifer Heilbronner Trust, providing low-cost yoga mats and second-hand dream catchers to the general public from a van on Front Street since 2003. (laughs) The Gregory T. Flynn Foundation, offering a cool place to hang out for people who like playing the new Street Fighter and watching old episodes of Red Dwarf on a sweet, gigantic flat screen since his girlfriend dumped him. (laughs) From your mom... From the Samuel G. and Laurie F. Coakley Foundation, supporting the removal of lower back and ankle tattoos of women between the ages of 20 and 26. (laughs) Online at What a Freaking Mistake That Was, I Didn't Know the Icelandic Symbol for Peace Was a Fist.org. And from listeners like you, handsome, charming, kind-hearted, salt of the earth, dependable, totally help you out if you get caught at the border with a package strapped to your chest, no questions asked, can I borrow the keys to your car, sexy listeners like you.
0: You're listening to Livewire, the show that's been waiting ten years to become an overnight success guys we're so close coming up after the break mk asante stay where you are we'll be right back Welcome back to Live Wire Radio, coming to you from the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. I'm your host, Luke Burbank.
3: open letter to Sinead O'Connor. Sinead, it's your father. I hear you've been running your mouth again, bleating like one of Farmer Hanahan's newborn lambs. Well, it doesn't surprise me that you're sticking your nose into the affairs of others. You take after your mother with that one. So Margaret O'Donoghue down at the lorry and Finch tells me you've been going after some wee girl all the while parading around like you're Queen of the Noel. Well, apparently, dipping a quill and writing letters to my list siren is how you spend your days. But why can't you find a minute or two to write your brother Liam? You know he's laid up with a bad back on account of the fall at Clancy Church. And when's the last time you called your sister? Oh, I guess you can't dial a phone with your Miss America fingernails and your 13 euro haircut. Seems to me you'd best be writing a letter to your family. Otherwise you can think twice about coming home. For the Feast of the Sacred Heart, done at Siobhan Eugene Moyron and David Brendan Darcy's. And who writes an open letter for just every Corey Jameson Christopher O'Reilly to read? You're supposed to write closed letters, letters full of guilt and shame and disgrace. Then you don't fold it, you just angrily fist it to into an envelope, wrap it around a brick, and throw it through the person's window. All right, now, I said my piece. I love you very much. Da.
0: Hey, LiveWire would like to give a special thanks to our Northwest radio partners for their generous support. 101.9 Kink, Progressive Rock Radio here in Portland, KUOW in Seattle, and of course our hometown host station, KOPB. Thanks, you guys. When Maya Angelou describes your memoir as a story with passion, compassion, wit, and style, you're probably kind of doing okay for yourself as a writer. MK Asante is the author, filmmaker, and professor Angelou was referring to. And the memoir is Buck, Asante's story of surviving a town he and his friends call Philadelphia. With a big brother he continues to idolize even as he's being carted off to jail. Please welcome MK Asante to Livewire.
6: Young Buck, Buck Wild, Buck Shots, Buck Town, Slave Buck, Make Buck, Black Buck, Buck Now. What's up, y'all? How you doing, Livewire? I, I, I wanna take you on a journey to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, real quick. Drop it. The fall in Philadelphia. Outside is the color of cornbread and blood. Change hangs in the air like the sneaks on the live wires behind my crib. Me and my big brother Uzi. He's in the kitchen rolling a blunt. The one with Tyson on the cover, rocking a koofy, ice grilling through the gloss. Uzi can roll a blunt with his eyes closed. He cracks, splits, and busts. John looks like a paintbrush. John could mean anything, a person, a place, or a thing. Sometimes if we're telling a story and we don't want people to know what we're talking about, we'll plug John in for everything. Yo, the other day I was at the John with the young John from around the corner, right? We get to the John, right? And the boy at the door all on his John, not knowing I had that John on me. Man, it was about to be on in that John. Uzi is the color of walnuts and has a long, sharp face like the African mask my dad hangs up everywhere. And this is how it always goes. Me following my big brother in everything, everywhere, like his little black Jan sport. Covered in marks a lot, strapped tight to his back, koala style, anywhere, any place. He does it, I do it. He tries it, I'm trying it. He can, why can't I? Sometimes I even duck like Uzi under doorways, even though he's way taller and I don't need to duck. I follow Uzi to sweaty Badlands house parties that always end in crazy shirtless rumbles with everybody howlin' Northside, Northside in the middle of the street to Broad and Rockland the cop dime bags from one of the dusty bodegas with nothing but bacon soda and expired Bisquick on the shelves. And now, to joyride through Philly in a stolen wheel, being with Uzi makes me feel invincible like nothing bad can happen to us. Like nothing, and nobody can hurt us. I feel unquittable. wittable What's up, y'all? What's up? It's good to be here. Good to be here. It's my first time in Portland. It's my first time in Portland. I want to I take you back to, to, to North Philadelphia. Drop that. I walk... I walk up to the corner of 10th and Godfrey. We call it 10 G's, where we all chill. They stand where they always stand, between the liquor store and the corner store. Next to the Fern Rock apartment's fence, under the train tracks, and across the street from Rocksteady, this bug dude who sits on a crate all day, rocking all day with a broken radio, rocking his head back and forth to a beat no one else can hear. My mom calls them the corner boys, because they're always out there posted like guards at a checkpoint. They hugged the block, huddled and hustled, eyeing everything and everyone, everywhere, every day. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Now I'm going to tell you a quick story about how I went from Philadelphia and how a blank page saved my life. I see why reading was illegal for black people during slavery. I discovered that I think in words. The more words I know, the more things I can think about. My vocab and thoughts grow together like the stem and petals of a flower. Reading was illegal because if you limit someone's vocab, you limit their thoughts. They can't even think of freedom because they don't have the language to. I turn the page over, it's blank again. The blank page is the starter pistol that fires and triggers my mind to sprint. What will I write? What will I say? Will I say what I write? Write what I say? How will I start? Whose story will I tell? My story? Something made up? How about a story about a boy from Philly? A lost boy who wants to find himself, but doesn't know where to look. Who wants to tell his story, but doesn't know where to begin or end, who searches anyway and discovers something about himself, about the world. I stare at the blank page, an ocean of white alive with possibility. I hear myself take a breath, then exhale deep, like I just rose from underwater. My hands shaking now, trembling like it's freezing. And then it hits, a silence louder than all the music I've ever heard in my life. All the light in the world, in one beam, before me. I grip the pen and something shoots down my spine, sits me straight up. The pen feels heavy like it's made of stone. I stare deep into the blank page and see myself. I feel something I've never felt before. Purpose. I don't know what my exact purpose is yet, but I know it has something to do with this pen and this blank page. I am a blank page. I'm and a play Passante,
0: ladies and gentlemen, right here on Livewire Radio.
6: <laughs> Thank you.
0: You know, um, T.C. Boyle wanted to wrap his reading, <laughs> and I'm glad we decided to have you do Yo, it instead. That's the remix right there. Yeah.
6: Me and T.C. Boyle.
0: My man. I want to talk a little bit about your life because uh, you actually were born in Zimbabwe. And uh, it sounds like when you were young, your parents had it somewhat together. But then your book begins in in Philadelphia, as you call it, with your brother and the police are about to make a. a pretty extreme entrance into the house. Yeah. How, did you, how did you end up there, where, where your book starts?
6: You know, um, that was really the most... My book deals with kind of... It's a coming-of-age story. deals with my life between the ages of 13 and 18. And it deals with some of the most difficult times. You know, Frederick Douglass said, Without struggle no progress, and we definitely struggled. So, you know, we also progress. But, yeah, it it starts with my brother getting arrested, you know, my mom going to a mental institute, my dad leaving. You know, it deals with me being on the streets and just getting my education. Buck is about miseducation, re-education, self-education, street education, and, as Mark Twain said, the difference between school and education. (laughs) Now, you write, too, that you you have something called hip-hop Tourette's. Oh, yeah, my hip-hop Tourette's is real strong. Hip-hop Tourette's is, you know, we spit lyrics to songs all day, every day, no matter what we're doing. We could be walking to the store. We could be doing homework, whatever, but these lyrics just jump out of us, right? The bars just jump out of us. We can't control it. I call that hip-hop Tourette's. <laughs> Either you're slinging crack rock or you got a wicked jump shot. Do people That's look just, at
0: you? Or <laughs>
6: Do people, like, move to the other seat on the bus? You know what's crazy? This woman, call, this woman called in this radio show, and her son actually had Tourette's, and he loved hip-hop, and she was like, my son really has hip-hop Tourette's, <laughs> like, the real deal. But, um, but yeah, no, you know, every, everyone I knew growing up had hip-hop Tourette's. I'm sure y'all know people who got hip-hop Tourette's, you know. It's just, um, it's part of the culture. It's huge in Portland. It's a very, I mean, look, look at these people. Uh,
0: I want to ask you, I want to ask you a serious question though, because I mean, you're. No, but it really is. Yo, who do you think buys hip hop? Yeah, white people, yeah, seriously. I want to, I want to ask you a kind of serious question, which is you, I mean, you, uh, you've written this book, you're a filmmaker, you teach at a college. And yet you were one of these young black men who had a lot of chaos going on. And you're here on this stage in Portland in front of these earnest white people. And a lot of guys are in jail. What is the difference for you in your life experience?
6: You know, um, I mean, it talked about it in, in the book. You know, literacy was was key and just reading and just opening up those channels, having the blank page. You know, for me, before I, I went to this alternative, I ended up at this alternative school. I got kicked out of a whole bunch of schools and ended up at this alternative school and Really having the freedom to express myself, the blank page and all of that, you know. Before school was always rote memorization, regurgitation. You know what I mean? It was never, it was never about me expressing my own ideas. So that education really opened up doors for me, um, and really just seeing, um, just seeing where that the other life gets you. You know what I mean? I was think there I- a person uh, or a group of people who like took you and and sort
0: of pointed you in a certain direction or said to you like, "Hey, okay." this has been your life so far, but this can be your life going yeah, this other way?
6: Yeah, you know, it was, a, it was a lot of people. I mean, part of it was family, and that's part of what my story is about is about how families can be disrupted and dysfunctional, but how they can also come together and, and come together even stronger. So, part of my success has been, you know, my family kind of coming back together um, and, and being advocates for me. Also, yeah, I had that teacher, and I had all these other teachers just, you know, my whole thing is the whole world is a university. Anybody could be a professor, right? And so, I had professors all walks of life. I mean, there was a, a dude, a homeless dude one day came up to me. He was like, young man, you know what soul is? And I'm like, soul train? You know? <laughs> he's like, no, soul is the graceful survival against impossible circumstances and you got soul. Now, that's a professor. Tell me you gave that guy some money. <laughs> I did, of course. You know, yeah. but not as, not as much as tuition, you know what right. I'm saying? Right. And, and, you know, <laughs> he's a professor. <laughs> M.K. Asante, ladies and gentlemen, his book is Buck, A
0: Memoir. And that is our show. Thank you so much for listening. Our thanks to our guests, T.C. Boyle, Ian Desher, M.K. Asante, and Tanya Donnelly. Our house band is Ralph Huntley, Jim Brunberg, and Dave Jorgensen. This show is made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, Laughing Planet Cafe, and Burgerville. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and Work for Art, the Oregon Arts Commission, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Plus, listeners like you find people... Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Our executive producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show is also produced by Courtney Hommeister and Jim Brunberg. Our sketch comedy troupe is Sean McGrath, Laura Faye Smith, Courtney Hommeister, and Andrew Harris. Our head writer is Courtney Hommeister with show writers Sean McGrath, Jason Rouse, and a little bit from me. Guest writers of this show are Alex Falcone and Caitlin Kunkel. Sound effects by Jason Rouse. Our technical director is Jonathan Newsom. Our house engineer is Graham Nystrom. Stage management by Will Fernandez. Special thanks to Revival Drum Shop and Showcase Music. Livewire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. Thank you to Katie Merritt, Kathleen Lane, Sarah Guest, and all of the wonderful people from Wordstock. For more information about our show or how to become a member of LiveWire, visit LiveWireRadio.org. You can download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. And find us on Twitter and Facebook at Livewire Radio. This is Luke Burbank. We'll see you next week. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of LiveWire delivered right to your heart and ears each week?